Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 48 Ars Magica. This week's topic is one I've been wanting to cover since I first started the show and I saw it for the very first time, but I kept waiting for what I considered to be the right time. Fortunately for all of us, today's the right time. Ars Magica is a much-loved fantasy role-playing game that has survived for 35 years, 5 editions, and 4 publishers. If you do a Google search of Ars Magica, you'll find review after review from people who not only love this game, but many of them swear it's the only fantasy role-playing game they'll play. So what's Ars Magica all about? Let's get the tour bus cranked up and get to it. Ars Magica was created by Jonathan Tweet and Mark Ryan Hagen and was initially published by Lion Rampant Games in 1987. What made Ars Magica different from most other fantasy-based role-playing games of the time was the setting. While we expand on this in a little bit, the setting is what was called Mythic Europe, which is a historically grounded version of Europe around 1200 AD. That automatically made Ars Magica a bit different, as players could look to actual European history and maps and figure out approximately where things would have been, as well as matching up what historically occurred in the game world with events in the real world of the 13th century. Something else that made Ars Magica different from the other games of the time, and quite frankly still makes it different from other games, is that the way the game is set up utilizes the troop setting. Now, we've discussed the troop setting on multiple occasions, but the big connection that we need to look at is the concept that every member of the troop is intended to have the opportunity to be the story guide, which is the troop's term for GM. The basic idea is that as the game ends one chapter and begins another, the previous story guide steps back into the shoes of a player, and the next member of the troop steps up and runs the new chapter. Now, that doesn't mean that every member of the troop necessarily has to run, but it certainly makes sure that they have the opportunity to run if they want to. Some might say this style of game wouldn't be the best for a group with a bunch of inexperienced GMs, but I would argue that if you've got one or two fairly experienced GMs, this would be the perfect ground for a new GM to get their feet wet. After all, they don't have to create an entire world, nor do they have to create an entire campaign. All they have to do is create and run a portion of a campaign. If it were me, and this is a little bit of the bad GM coming out here, I'd have an experienced GM handle the first chapter, then one of the experienced ones, then another experienced GM, if you have one, and so on and so forth. Maybe I need to put this game on the campaign build-along list. Hmm. I should note for the record that in the most recent edition, the troop system is somewhat de-emphasized, with an alpha story guide handling the overall plot and a beta story guide handling the peripherals. The other thing that makes Ars Magica different from other games is the fact that players have more than one character at a time. The theory behind this is that if the chapter being run doesn't really provide one character with a proper motivation to be involved, the player has another character they can take along. Of course, this works best when the two characters are different in class and style. So having two identical characters would probably not be a good idea. Sorry about going off topic for just a second, but I really wanted to hit on those two points while they were fresh on my mind. Let's get back into the history of the game. 
As I mentioned a moment ago, the first edition was published by Lion Rampant Games in 1987, and they published a number of modules to support this version. Sales were brisk, and Lion Rampant decided to update the rules and publish a second edition, which they did in 1989. Again, they supported it with modules, and they also partnered up with Atlas Games for more Ars Magica material to be published to support the game. As before, sales were still solid, and players continued to clamor for more product for this game. However, in 1991, Lion Rampant Games merged with White Wolf Game Studio, and there was a moment in time that gamers were concerned that Ars Magica would either go away or undergo major changes. They really needn't have worried. White Wolf understood what they had, and immediately began publishing more adventure modules for the game. In the meanwhile, they tapped Mark Ryan Hagen and Ken Cliff to once again update the rules for a new edition, which if you're a regular listener of this show, shouldn't surprise you, as we've seen this with multiple other systems when they get a new publisher. The third edition of Ars Magica was released in 1992, and there are many in the game community who point to the influence Ars Magica had on the White Wolf Storyteller system, and those changes are still in use to this day. Again, if you were wondering about how well Ars Magica was received, that last comment should tell you everything you needed to know. White Wolf pulled out all the stops, publishing about a dozen different supplements for the game, as well as adding the divine and infernal mechanics, along with rules for shamanic magic, beginning the Tribunal series, and ending the Four Seasons series that Lion Rampant had begun. Again, this, this all makes sense, as the new publisher will usually try to put their own spin on a game product. That being said, they don't always go quite this far, but when it's White Wolf, chances are usually good that not only has it been well thought out, but also that what they come up with will be just as good, if not better, than what they started with. This held true with Ars Magica. Sales continued to be good, so much so that Wizards of the Coast purchased the rights to Ars Magica from White Wolf in 1994. Now, before you get too excited, this was the pre-D&D Wizards of the Coast. At this point, they'd primarily done card games and board games and hadn't yet become the big name they'd be in just a couple more years. But Wizards took this acquisition seriously and hired Jonathan Tweet, who's the other co-creator of the game, and tasked him with working up a fourth edition. While Tweet was working that up, Wizards published a supplement for 4th edition, which you'll note came out before the 4th edition was even done, and reprinted a couple of supplements from 3rd edition. But development of 4th edition fell behind schedule. In my research for this show, I was unable to come up with reasons why this happened. And it might have just been that Tweet ran into issues with the update, or Wizards might have put something else on his plate. Regardless of why it fell behind, it did fall behind and it resulted in Wizards of the Coast getting cold feet. On December 5th, 1995, Wizards announced to the gaming world that they were getting out of the tabletop role-playing business forever, which meant everything Ars Magica was being shelved. Now, as we know, they didn't stay out of the game forever. When they got back in, they changed the nature of the business. For Ars Magica, however, it meant yet another publisher, though this publisher at least had some previous history with the product. At some point in 1996, Atlas Games purchased the rights to the game. Now, as we discussed a bit ago, Atlas Games had been involved with Ars Magica back during the Lion Rampant time, as they'd produced modules for the first two editions of the game. 
With all of the rights now in their possession, Atlas decided to revive the 4th edition concept and release it themselves. That version, which Jonathan Tweet and Jeff Tidball ultimately worked on, was very well received, and Tidball continued to work on developing the line, writing new material and working on the peripherals as the new edition took off. As the 90s turned into the 2000s, Atlas decided it was time for yet another new edition. David Chart was tapped to develop that new edition, which released in 2004. Now, I mentioned the adjustment to the troop system a bit ago, but Chart also made changes to the combat experience and character creation systems of the game, which were all met with general approval from the gaming community. It should be noted that this version of the game won the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Game of 2004. It should also be noted that, since 2014, the fourth edition of Ars Magica has been distributed for free at Warehouse 23, courtesy of Steve Jackson Games. For the record, Ars Magica continues to chug along, holding down their section of the fantasy role-playing market and working to satisfy their many fans. As of this recording, I haven't found any concrete evidence of a 6th edition, but since it's now been 18 years since the release of 5th edition, one has to wonder if there isn't a new version in the works. Of course, if I hear anything on that front, you will be the first to know. Okay, so we've covered some of the history of Ars Magica. Next up, let's take a look at the setting. The setting of Ars Magica is known as Mythic Europe. And as I mentioned in the opening, it's primarily based on 12th and 13th century Europe. From a geography standpoint and a mundane politics standpoint, things are practically identical, piece by piece. A major difference in the Ars Magica world is that things that were attributed to folklore and the like at that time actually happened. What I mean is fairies actually steal lost children. Demons actually cause disease and crop failure. Angels actually help the righteous. Dragons and other magical creatures are real. Now, 3rd edition made a slight adjustment to this in order to blend Ars Magica into the world of darkness. The reality became fact due to the belief of the tales. If you have any familiarity with World of Darkness, you understand why they did that. The two most recent editions have backed away from that belief and went back to the original idea of everything just being real because it was real. Now, before we move along, I also need to clarify the multiple character idea that I mentioned earlier. For the record, I knew this, but as usual, I was trying to be cute or funny. And yeah, I know, I got the memo, it didn't work. Okay. Anyway, the players will alternate between a magus, you know, a magic user, and a companion. Now, for the purposes of Ars Magica, companions are skilled but not magical, and their job is to assist their magus or magus, or, I mean, you know what, I'm going to say mage, because, well, you know, magi are just not into non-magical stuff, at least in this game. There are also grogs, which are considered to be skilled peasants and usually bodyguards or watchmen. Initially, these were characters that were considered to be open for any of the players to play. But by 5th edition, the rules were fleshed out to make them an actual player class. Wizards in Ars Magica tend to gather in places called covenants, which are specialized strongholds typically built in places of power. They're also the home base for magi, and they're in charge there. So, covenants are a very large part of the game. So much so that troops are encouraged to build the covenants along the lines of being the be-all, end-all. And since we're talking about the Magi, let's talk about the Order of Hermes. 
The Order of Hermes is the society of magically gifted humans that all of the standard player character magi will belong to. The developers created a deep backstory about the creation of the Order, including the year and creator of the Order. We could talk for days about that history, but this is only a 30-minute show. So, the TLDR on this would be thus. The Order of Hermes was inspired in 767 AD by the witch Trigonoma and Magis Bonasagas. They combined their visions to form what has developed into the Order. There you go. The Order has 12 houses, but it's also divided into tribunals, and those are defined by their geographic location. I'm going to mention those here because it will give you an idea of exactly how similar to the real Europe this game is. So let's see, you've got the Greater Alps, Iberian, Normandy, Provencal, that's southern France in case you're curious, Roman, Theban, Transylvanian, Rhine, Novgorod, that includes Poland, uh, Stonehenge, Loch Leggen, Hibernian, that's Ireland, by the way, and Levantine. Okay, yeah, math's right. There are tribunal meetings every seven years or so, and all of the tribunals send representatives to a meeting every 33 years. Now, there's a whole lot more on this in the rule books. I'm just going to encourage you to read it all there. Now, we've covered some of the organizations around magic. How about we take a look at the various realms of power in Ars Magica? First up is the Divine Realm. I think you can figure out the basics of this one, but in the interest of thoroughness, let's break it down. The divine realm is the holy force of creation and represented by the scriptures of the Abrahamic religions and God's agents in the world. Much as it was during the real history of Europe, the divine realm attempts to downplay anything that isn't attuned to it, like fairies or magic, and is absolutely opposed to anything infernal. I mean, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, Except Monty Python fans. Anyway, one of the issues the Divine Realm has is in reconciling their avoidance of mundane politics with their spread of the Dominion, which basically means they're trying to stay out of politics even as their influence spreads around the continent. And does that sound familiar? Hmm. All right, next up is the Infernal Realm. That is the realm of Satan and his forces. Again, I think you could figure out what their deal is. Corruption, destruction, and the temptation of mortals are top on the list. Also, the Order of Aramis will not name Infernals as their enemies, but also will not make any agreements or deals with them. I think you can figure out why. I mean, hell, we've got the phrase, deal with the devil. There you go. Let's move on to something a little more fun. That would be the Fairy Realm. These are the creatures you've read about in just about every fairy tale you've ever read or had read to you. Like I said, they're real in this game. Fairies in Ars Magica are addicted to, and some argue dependent upon, human attention, emotion, and creative expression. Also, folks are allowed, and in some cases encouraged, to study fairies. And the Order of Hermes is allowed to associate with and make deals with the fairies. Last up is the Realm of Magic. Now, this is the one that's a bit more ethereal, as it's more a force than anything. And since I can't afford a lawsuit from the House of Mouse, that's a lowercase f on the word force. Thank you very much. Anyway, this is the power that Magi use to cast spells. Yep, that's my breakdown of the Realm of Magic. All right, so we've done some history, we've done some setting. 
It's now time for the part of these shows that I really dig, and that's popping the hood to take a look at how it runs. Ars Magica is a D10 system, so you can leave the rest of your dice in storage when you play the game. Characters have eight characteristics. Intelligence, perception, strength, stamina, presence, communication, dexterity, and quickness. These are each rated somewhere between negative five to plus five for humans, and a score of zero is considered average, as you might expect. To perform the majority of actions, you add the score of a characteristic to a relevant ability, then roll your d10. Add the result of the d10 roll to the total of the characteristic plus the ability, and that's your total. You take that number, compare it to the target difficulty or ease factor. If the rolled total is equal or greater to the target, it is a success. Lower than is a failure. Makes sense. There is an exception to this, because of course there is. If there's an opportunity for exceptional success or exceptional failure, and you will know this before you roll, ones and zeros are a bit different. In these instances, ones are re-rolled and the results are doubled. This continues for as long as a one continues to be rolled, which can make for an exceptionally successful success. Zeros get the same treatment, only in this case they're not tens, they're zeros, and they lead to botches. So, it's a bit of a different take on the D10 system than we've seen in the past, but an interesting take nonetheless. So let's move on and take a look at the magic system of Ars Magica. I mean, magic is in the game's name, so it should be a big thing, right? So the magical system of Ars Magica, in the book anyway, credits the system of hermetic magic to Bonasagas. It consists of 15 arts, which are divided into 5 techniques and 10 forms. Now, this would be what is known as a verb-noun system, with the technique to be the verb, which is the effect the magic will have, and the form to be the noun, and that's the entity, object, or substance that is either affected or brought forth. Now, the scores for the arts start at zero for a character, and while they can be increased, usually only one of them can be increased during a single season, or chapter, or whatever we're calling it in our own game. For those of you familiar with Latin, this next part's going to probably be a bit boring, but if you listen anyway, you can hear my untrained American dumbass stumble over some Latin. Yay. Should be interesting. I do also need to note that each technique is named with a first-person singular present tense indicative Latin verb. And yes, that was hard to say. You have no idea. Also, before I start, that also all just felt like a bit from Life of Brian. Google that shit if you don't know what I mean. Anyway, the techniques are creo, I create. This brings objects and substances into existence from nothing, or it makes an already existing target a more perfect version of itself. Think healing magic. Intelego, I perceive, detects or reveals, enhances a target's natural senses or conveys supernatural senses. Muto, I transform, alters the nature of a being, object, or substance. Perdo, I destroy decays, disintegrates, or otherwise lessens the target. In other words, it makes the target a lesser version of itself. Rego, I control. This is manipulation of the target in ways that don't alter it. Okay, now the forms. Each form is named by a singular accusative Latin noun. Again, this feels like Life of Brian, but again, I digress. Animal impacts all natural things that aren't plants or humans, so that would be animals and animal products, 
basically. Aram affects lightning, wind, and gaseous substances. No comment. Aquum is used for any liquid except blood. Corpus applies to the human body. Erbam primarily covers plants, but works for any organic material that isn't human or other animal. Ignim involves light and heat. Imaginim deals with images, sounds, and other sensory stimuli. Mentem is emotions, memories, thoughts, and spirits. Terum covers earth and minerals. Vim, power. That's magic itself. Also includes demons. Now, when casting a spell, you add the scores in the mage's appropriate technique and form. And it should be noted that some spells use more than one technique and or more than one form at the same time. This is resolved by using the lower score in each category to total up for your score. There are a ton of other rules that go into effect when casting spells, but we're not going to even try to cover all of them here. I mean, if I told you everything, there'd be no need for you to buy the books and read them, right? <laughs> We've got one more thing to cover in this section of the show, and that's character development. I mean, I can't share all this cool stuff with you and not explain character development, right? All characters in the game earn experience during the game through exposure, practice, training, or study. The basic idea is that characters adventure, do their thing, gain experience, and improve. Magic, though, is different, <laughs> because of course it is. Mages are expected to spend months at a time with books and laboratory equipment, learning and expanding their knowledge base. There's a ton of rules in the books about this, but understand that studying and lab experiments are the big topics that mages are encouraged to focus on. It's basically implied in the rules that mages will create new spells or new magical items, though the specifics behind doing those things are a bit more elaborate. Again, though, it can also be applied that the study and research is how mages learn new spells, like ones that are already in the book, or create items such as the ones available in the rulebook. And that covers our brief look at character advancement. I admit, it's shorter than most of us probably would have liked, but the truth of the matter is that character advancement doesn't work like it does for games like D&D, where you gain X amount of experience and get X new abilities and or spells. You've got to apply things into characteristics or traits, which is more like a White Wolf game, by the way. And like I said before, we may need to do this game in a campaign build-along at some point. Hit me up if that interests you. All right, so let's look at reviews. I found dozens of reviews covering the various editions of Ars Magica. In truth, all of the reviews were positive, and reviewers just tended to love this game. I picked out one for this show, and it's a favorite source of mine, I have to admit. In the 1996 reader poll, Arcane Magazine held to determine the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time, Ars Magica came in at 19. Paul Pettengale, the editor at the time, said this, quote, This is a fantasy game for the thinking player, although there's plenty of scope for action, too. A first success for Jonathan Tweet and Mark Ryan Hagen, who both went on to even bigger things, Ars Magica includes one of the most flexible, highly regarded magic systems in the role-playing hobby. The game, which places heavy emphasis on storytelling, is extremely popular with fans who have followed its troubled history through four different publishers. With Atlas just about to produce a new edition, those fans are feeling suitably optimistic. End quote. And with that, we come to the end of today's episode. Next week, we'll take to the high seas. Well, seventh sea, anyway. 
I wanted to take a minute to plug our other show here. Some of you know about it, especially since we ran the debut episode a couple weeks ago in this spot. It's called Bad GM's Campaign Build Along, and we build an entire campaign for a game system from beginning to end. At present, we're building a game for Deadlands Classic, but as the show moves along, we'll get into other games as well. Maybe Ars Magica. You don't know. It's available now wherever you get your podcasts, and new episodes release on Friday mornings at the same time as new episodes of this show. The music for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for your music needs, especially if you're in need of royalty-free music. Thanks again for all of your support of this show for the past 11 months. We're getting closer to our one-year anniversary, and I've got something a little different planned for episode 52 in a few weeks, but I think I'm just going to let that be a surprise. I say all of that to say this. Thank you for continuing to support our show, and please continue to spread the word to everybody you know. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions, and you can follow us on Facebook, Bad GM Productions, Twitter, at Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions, we've got a Twitch channel, Bad GM, you can also email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. And I know I keep saying this, but it's true, every week we get closer to getting the website done, come by and check on the progress, badgmproductions.com. All right. Next week, we are going to live life on the high seas of 7th Sea. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's start talking like pirates and let's get ready, because I want you to be a part of that. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history. <laughs>